Welcome to Transformative Talk, Critical Conversations for Teachers. I'm Dr. Zid Haddad, a professor of instruction within the Department of Interdisciplinary Learning and Teaching at the University of Texas at San Antonio. I teach undergraduate and graduate courses in curriculum and instruction. In short, I teach teachers how to teach and save lives through the use of critical multicultural education as an approach to teaching and learning. Our podcast is produced by a different group of graduate students each week, giving them an opportunity to talk about what they're reading in my class, what they experience in the field, and how that impacts their own lives and understandings. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our podcast from wherever you're listening. Also, you can ask us questions and engage with us further using the Anchor.fm website or the Anchor.fm app on your phone. You can submit questions and you can also send us voice messages. And remember, please share our podcast on all your socials so that we can build our audience. Thanks for listening and here's today's episode. Emily Wright and Kalina Kreitz, your hosts for this episode of Transformative Talk. In this episode, we're going to talk about Pierre Bourdieu and his cultural capital theory, Moll's contrasting approach of funds of knowledge, and Yoso's theory of community cultural wealth. Our first theory that we're talking today comes from Pierre Bourdieu. He was a French sociologist, ethnographer, seeking to extend critical social theory work. Um, he grew up with very humble origins. His father was a postal worker, but came from uh, farmers and people who worked off the land. Um, despite his humble beginnings, he rose up in the French intellectual system. One thing that I thought was interesting from his background is he was conscripted into the military service um, for France during the Algerian War. Even though he was opposed to this war, he used that time to do field research on how the Algerian peasants changed due to the French modernization during the war. I, I think it's interesting that he took this not exactly uh, ideal circumstance to still learn and grow in his field. He was ultimately sent home back to France where he built uh, this theory based on cultural capital. You'll notice in our podcast today, we use lots of financial words, capital, assets, uh, this is because money is something all of us have to deal with every day. All of us understand, so it helps apply these principles to each of our lives. So three concepts that kind of come from Bourdieu's theory. First is habitus. One of you guys wanna jump in and talk about what is habitus? So some of the discussions that my group specifically was kind of having is that we really just tried to find a general term for habitus and how that looks um, to us and what we really came down to was um, a way a person of a particular background perceives and reacts to the world. So how does that person take in, you know, their social standings, where they're at, the different backgrounds that they're being exposed to, and how does that relate into how um, they interact socially, culturally within the different um different standpoints that they face, different situations that arise. And I know my group talked about how hegemony relates a lot to habitus because they're both the different ways of thinking and hegemony leads into how we make decisions based off of what we think and how we connect to the world. I love that. The idea that this habitus is kind of our first curriculum, you know, it's it's the foundation for how you're going to process and kind of see the world. 
So the next the next term is what is capital? And we're not referring to capital like oh money I have in my bank, but what what does Bordeaux say is capital? I feel like a big discussion in our class whenever we spoke about capital was like the the monetary um, possessions that you have. You know what possessions that you have that are of monetary value um, that the dominant groups within whatever region era you may be, whatever that dominant group has. So like in America, in America, you know the higher class. What you know? What type of vehicle do you have? That would be capital. Do you have a laptop um, as a student to be able to go home? Is an example that one of our peers had discussed. You know, does that student have a laptop and able to take it home to work on their extracurriculars? That is considered capital um, in Bordeaux terms. And traveling too, having experiences outside of the country that you're living in, those are considered capital. So kind of putting these two ideas together, this habitus, this um, place where you came from, your kind of lens and perspective, and then the capital, the asset. Now we have this idea of cultural capital. What's cultural capital? I think, again, just kind of building on, you know, the same idea of capital itself is that the cultural capital focuses more so on the middle and upper classes um, and social standing and how because of their wealthier monetary value, they have these higher forms of quote unquote capital um, that allow them to be more successful, whether it's school, whether it's their profession, where, whether it's their social standing, whereas the lower classes don't necessarily have what he terms cultural capital due to the lack of monetary value. Which is great when you come from the middle or upper class, you're like, oh, I have this cultural capital. And it's a good foundation for other theories, but if you're not in the upper class or middle class, you're asking, well, what about my culture? Does my culture have capital? So let's segue that idea, moving on to uh, funds of knowledge. So for the funds of knowledge, um, it was a study conducted by Maul, Amanti, Neff, and Gonzalez. Um, and just for the purpose of the podcast, I'll be referring to it as Maul. Um, but Maul is an associate professor of education at the University of Arizona. And what this um, research looked at was a study of household and classroom practices within working class Mexican communi communities in Tucson, Arizona. And just like you were saying, Emily, is like, how does that cultural capital actually go into those families who don't necessarily have the monetary value? They were asking those same kind of questions. How can we pull this amazing wealth of knowledge that our students have at home into our classrooms? So it was a qualitative ethnographic study, um, again, that looked at the household and classroom practices and how that can be integrated into the classroom. And one of their findings um, in regard to that educational implication is the intentionality of it. So being culturally relevant within your classroom and pulling in the funds of knowledge that your students have isn't something that necessarily just happens. 
sure sometimes you might hear kids having little conversations and you can hear little snippets to pull in, but for it to be truly meaningful um, to integrate this knowledge into the curriculum that you're expected to be teaching, um, you have to be intentional about finding out some of these resources. So like, for example, when thinking about um, the capital, regardless of the hierarchy of social class, um, some of our peers, Sylvia, Sita Day, and John discuss how some students over spring break, summer break, they might be going to France and they might be having these elaborate trips. Um, they might be getting to see all of these wonderful, very expensive um, different situations, different scenarios. And then you have some students that are going to Mexico. But while it's not necessarily a huge $100,000 trip, whatever it may be, they're still bringing in different cultural relevant aspects that can be utilized in the classroom. Um, have y'all seen anything like that through any of your students or through, you know, not necessarily the traveling piece, but being able to pull capital into the classroom? I know in my classroom, I try and build off of their interests. So right now I have a lot of boys that are obsessed with basketball. They play basketball at recess. They know so many things about the different basketball players. And so I just try and pull that in wherever I can, because I know it engages them in their learning and because they're interested in that topic. So we'll make math questions about basketball or basketball players, or we'll do biography research and they pick a person that they're interested in. And it's not more geared to where I'm picking someone they have to learn about, they get to choose. And so that's just a way that we kind of tie in their interests, what they're knowledgeable about. I love what Kalina said. And also from the study, the very first step was getting to know these students, going into their homes and interviewing their parents. And while as teachers, we don't always have that time or luxury to get to know the parents very well, getting to know your students and where they come from is so important in bringing that culture and helping them feel like they belong here. I and I think it's agree. hard, it's not very realistic anymore to go and do home interviews. I mean, a lot of districts don't allow that anymore. I know my district, we can't go and do home visits unless we bring admin, which can make it more intimidating for parents and they may not be willing to open up, but we have to, as educators, find other ways to get to know our students. I think so too. So my district is set up very similar, similarly. And, um, you know, like one way, like I tried to do that is by bringing them in for conferences and bringing, trying to bring them into the classroom, you know, doing mystery readers, having parents come in and, you know, they give out three clues and the kids are guessing all day who it could be. And then they come in and they get to choose a book. Like I had a parent come and read a book that's in Spanish because I do teach ESL students. And so she came and read, she would read a page in Spanish. And then the second page was written in English. So she would read the Spanish and I would read in English. And my emergent bilingual kiddos loved it. All of my kiddos loved it, whether they spoke Spanish or not, they thought it was the coolest thing. And I feel like that's just one very simple way because teachers already have so much on their plate. I feel like it's a very easy, doable way to bring in that household knowledge. So thinking about this household knowledge, how do y'all see that building on Bordeaux's idea of cultural capital? 
I think it's a form of resisting his idea of cultural capital because Mal is showing that your capital doesn't just come from your economic standing and what class you're in. You can have capital through different ways. And I think that uh, Emily's example of the trip to France versus Mexico shows this because both students are traveling to a foreign country where there's different foreign money, there's a different language spoken, there's different cultures. One of these trips is going to cost financially a lot more than the other trip, but the students are gaining uh, important, you know, global perspectives from both of these trips. It's not reflective on on how much you spend. It's on you know being able to be immersed in that culture. I think you both articulated that really well, and that how yes, the cultural capital that Bordeaux discusses is not necessarily what we want to see in education, but it's foundational to where we are going in education. So funds of knowledge definitely build off of that and reaches the lower class, you know, where is their capital? Um, but then pushing that idea even further, we go into Tara Yoso's idea of community cultural wealth. So Yoso introduces a new form of resistance that pushes past Bordeaux and Mal's idea of funds of knowledge with her community cultural wealth. And she looks at these ideas and CRT and she starts to leave behind the idea that capital is from your class or your economic standing. And she looks at six, six different areas where communities and people hold capital. So she comes up with these six aspirational, familial, social, linguistic, resistant, and navigational capital and how they play into the different ways that people can come and bring different forms of capital into the classroom and into their communities. I did notice that with Bordeaux and Mall and Yoso that they do all use these financial terms. Did you guys notice how they use these financial terms? Yeah, and to be honest, when I first started reading, I thought they were actually talking about, you know, wealth and money. I didn't realize it was symbolic of, of other resources. I agree. And I um and while Bordeaux definitely, Bordeaux does definitely highlight the monetary value, I still didn't necessarily see it in the other articles until it was kind of pointed out. And then I was like, wow, it's just kind of in your face. And you're like, how could you miss that? Um, but it makes sense, like Emily was talking about at the beginning, how it really does create that common knowledge for everyone, regardless of their educational background, to have that understanding because money essentially is what kind of dominates our society. Yeah, everyone has a chance to relate to it because we've all interacted with money. We understand the terms of money. And so now we can make connections to all of these different theories. Well, we will be right back after the break to continue our discussion on how community cultural wealth is seen in our schools. Hey, it's Dr. Haddad. Thanks for listening to this episode of Transformative Talk. If you like what you hear, please make sure to subscribe on whatever platform you're listening to us on and leave us a message or send us a comment on the website. We look forward to hearing from you all. And thanks again for listening to Transformative Talk.
Welcome back to this week's transformative talk. We are your hosts, Kalena, Emily Oliver, and Emily Wright. In class, to get the creative juices rolling, we talked about the books New Kid and Class Act by Jerry Craft. These books follow three main characters. Jordan, a young black man from a Washington Heights neighborhood. Liam, who lives in a wealthy neighborhood and his family employs a maid and cook and driver. And then Jordan, who lives in a co-op high-rise apartment with his grandmother. Though all three come from very diverse economic backgrounds, they all attend the same prestigious uh, middle school where they meet and become friends. So let's jump in here and talk about Liam's cultural capital. So remember, Liam is a white kid from a, a ritzy neighborhood. What kind of cultural capital does he have? I think through Bourdieu's terms, he would be considered to have a lot of cultural capital because he is economically advantaged. But then we look in the story and he doesn't have a lot of parent involvement, doesn't have a lot of fam familial support. So he has the economic background and that advantage, but then he doesn't have a lot of capital like Yosa would refer to. I agree. And I think, you know, like you're saying, like he has the driver, he has the cook, he has the big house. Um, but then again, you know, thinking about specifically Yoso's familial capital, you know, he, his dad hadn't been to any of his t-ball games. Mm -hmm. um, and he sees that and recognizes that in his friends, Andrew and Jordan, and he sees how they do have those advantages of having their family members come. And, um, so essentially, yes, he has the cultural capital, but he doesn't necessarily have community cultural wealth or fun or a highlight of funds of knowledge that Yosa and Mole both um, articulate. All right, moving on to Jordan. Remember, Jordan lives in Washington Heights neighborhood. So I would say, you know, like middle class neighborhood, but, you know, the book talks about his his parents' involvement, his grandpa, what other forms of cultural capital does Jordan offer? His parents both, his grandparents are very present in his life. Um, you know, they're very passionate about his education. They want him to receive a high education, um, even though, you know, he's very concerned about fitting in and, um, you know, not standing out along his Years and but his parents are just so engaged in his life and want him to be successful and want him to have these advantages um, in his adulthood that they push him towards it. And so he definitely, like you're saying, has that familial capital and really is like most present as far as community cultural wealth goes. Mm -hmm. Even a lot of our classmates mentioned that the food that he was eating in his home was capital because it, Liam was eating this keto pizza cauliflower and then Jordan had this home cooked meal with mac and cheese and so even food and traditions like food have capital. I love that. All right our last character is Drew who grows up in the co-op apartment with his grandma probably socially speaking um, economically speaking, uh, comes from the most humble backgrounds, but what kind of capital does he offer? 
I think again, that familial capital really pulls in from Yoso because he does live with his grandma. He most likely is being instilled those traditional societal views. You know, she, he kind of thinks within the text that we presented to our peers, you know, he's thinking about how like, oh, she usually likes it when we call ahead, you know, she wants to be known before guests arrive. Um, so definitely that cultural wealth is present through his grandmother. It just really struck me on that last page when we looked at, and he said, I just wish people like Andy could see my view too. And they're standing out on his balcony looking out at the city. And it just really got me thinking about how every student in the classroom should have their capital valued so that everybody's able to see that they have value. They hold capital that other people don't have. I think it's important to note too, like building off of that, I feel like each of the boys were nervous about their friends coming over. They were nervous about their friends seeing what their home life was. And, you know, that builds exactly on what you were saying. And even, you know, I think of my students when it's time to share, like they get a little nervous to share things. And, you know, I put up some pictures of their family and one of my little girls was like, I wish mom wouldn't have picked that picture. I was like, oh, but your whole family's in it. Yeah, I guess you're right. You know, you get to see Bubba in it. And so just trying to appreciate those moments. And, but, you know, schooling is hard. Society is hard. You know, kids are trying to fit in. And I think this text did a great job of representing that. And on that note, all of the kids were happy where they were. I think sometimes we have this idea of, oh, we need to elevate you in the economic scheme. Like we need to take these people from, you know, low income and help them rise above their neighborhoods. But guess what? their neighborhood has so much to offer and their family is so important. And so in, instead of trying to elevate them on Bordeaux's idea of cultural capital, being able to em embrace Yoso's vision for this cultural capital. And I think that's a perfect way to kind of transition, transition us into a graffiti wall activity that um, us and our peers did in the classroom where we kind of honed in on Yoso's six forms of community cultural wealth, which again are aspirational, linguistic, familial, resistance, navigational, and social. Um, so we were actually able to get a clip of our um, peers discussing these kind of in detail. Everyone got a chance to go throw up some ideas of how they either saw that form of capital in themselves, and the school system or in their students um, and then each group got a chance to discuss so we're going to be playing through that and just kind of stopping in um, and just having some conversations over it. We're going to begin with um, linguistic capital um, to start off the conversation. Sometimes maybe if you're not the majority, it could be um, looked at as a deficit, but if you know your the culture and the language is the dominant, then it can definitely be an asset. So um, just we were just talking about how like different situations in different parts of the US view linguistic capital differently. Then in like our the school I teach at, it's um, about 85% Hispanic, if not more. And we don't play up the bilingual part at all because they have a hard enough time at high school level of just understanding writing English, um, understanding definitions. So we're still focused on just getting them to that point. 
that we don't put, which we should because we know it's a great opportunity, but we don't we don't put as much into the bilingual part because we're just trying to get them to some better writers, red readers, stuff of that nature. So I think it depends on your location too. Um, one thing we talked about with this linguistic capital is my husband is fluent speaking French. And oftentimes people think, oh, that's such great capital that he has. And it is, but where we live, he doesn't get to use it very often. Every once in a while, he'll meet someone who's a native French speaker and they can converse. But for him, he, he doesn't really use that that often. Whereas for a Spanish speaker, in the eyes of society, it might not have the, the, the capital of Bordeaux, but it's so functional, you can use it all the time and is actually a, a huge asset for the community cultural wealth. And that really ties into a conversation that some other classmates had. Heather was talking about how, as a lot of educators have deficient thinking when it comes to Spanish and they don't see the value of it. And so I was going to play the clip that she talked about it. One way that we do that is through school. We say, oh, well, we have the authority to tell you that your knowledge isn't valuable. You have a deficit. You speak Spanish, and even though you speak more languages than your teacher, that's a deficit because it, Spanish isn't valued here. So that's that exists. And then pedagogic authority is like, I mean, it can go either way. We use it as one or the other tool of coercion. And then it causes some bias, which then causes the student to I love how she talks about how all of these things lead up to students resisting us and the classroom and education. And one way that education could be reformed to embrace that cultural capital, instead of penalizing these students and putting them in remedial classes, offer them advanced Spanish classes to, you know, to encourage this growth and and that development i think oftentimes schools have spanish classes but they're only geared towards students who don't speak spanish so why not have uh you know a grammar spanish class or a, a class that really you know shows the strength of these students and helps build that up instead of just focusing on the deficit thinking and now we're gonna push into the next form of capital that was discussed uh, Mr. Capital? Uh, yeah, so um, a lot of it um, support just oh, yeah, feminism, ethnic matter movements, um, so all these different um, social movements um, that kind of fall under resistant capital. And uh, to me, we're really kind of focused on this and it's that they're all linked to this critical thinking, pretty critically like I think like I like the times in curriculum is like introducing thinking routines like critical uh, media, critical literacy, and probably starting these all help build up the resistant capital. It's just, is resistant capital learned through history? So yeah. the, the response from people, yes, yeah. yeah. about like people of color and groups of people of color who have fought for. Um, access to stuff like i'm thinking of the chicano movement i'm thinking of all these other things that have a history behind them 
Well, that's the that's the other part. Depends on the dang narrative. Mm -hmm. well, we had one period to talk about the whole Chicago or one slide and the yeah. whole slide about the World War II. Right. No additional. And another, I think mm -hmm. another example that was shared by Jeanette in our class. She started, shared a story. She became a mother at 15 and wanted to continue her education and be involved in the drama club. But the drama club teacher said, no, you need to go spend time with your baby and your diapers and your bottles. You don't belong here. And she used that experience to really um, propel her in the direction she wanted to. She resisted that idea. And I think she said that she actually helped produce a film later in life. I think that's a great example. And then additionally, um, when the question was being asked at the end of resistance, um, that was by Dr. Haddad, and it brought out a very good point that sure, we try to pull in that resistance of capital, but unfortunately, a lot of the times it's just being pulled into one slide in an entire mm -hmm. conversation because, you know, we are expected to be teaching the curriculum that is given to us. Um, and you are having to try to push it in where you can, but that doesn't mean it can't be completely ignored. Um, and so that's gonna kind of push us into. Well, and that made me think about our narrative. When I teach fourth grade, we look at cotton. Cotton is a huge part of what we teach about in fourth grade, but nowhere in the teaks does it mention the word slavery. In our slideshow, it's one slide, but that's, how it all came to be and yet we're not teaching the children that narrative we're only teaching the narrative of how texas got its money through cotton right and i think i think that's a great um example to kind of lead us into navigational capital which is going to be the next discussion you hear that's a good idea and you can kind of see from y'all's responses too that a lot of it is like you were saying stepping into that uncertain situation and like, okay, this is where I'm at, you're uncomfortable, you're, you know, you might not necessarily have that capital, but you have the capital of being able to navigate that um, scenario to succeed in. Um, is that similar to when um, Black parents talk to their children about what to do when they, if they get told over? Is that navigational capital about how to navigate that situation? So there's a kind of, it's kind of, kind of knowledge of not necessarily knowing what other environments you're in, but how to handle them that's passed on through these different capitals. Right? Ooh, I, got I think kind of building on what Dr. Haddad was just saying, that was Dr. Haddad speaking, um, it's hard to have those kind of navigational conversations in the classroom um, with fear of being reprimanded for having those quote unquote heavier conversations with your students. Um, but I think a great way to have those conversations are through mentor text. So, for example, um, the read aloud, the talk by Alicia D. Williams um, is does follow a 
black young student as he's growing um, up. So he starts about the age six, five, six years old and kind of grows up into his teen years. And, you know, he's doing things like, oh, I love to put my headphones in my ears and put my hood on because it's my safe space. But then mom pulls me back into the kitchen and tells me I can't do that, that I need to keep my hood down. And so it's him going through just his everyday life, like how he's comfortable as a child growing in society. But then in the illustrations, it's showing the concern that mom and dad have um, because that he is a minority and a prejudice that he may face. I love that Yosemite is in this capital and shows that this is capital. Because some children don't ever have to learn this, don't ever have to be able to understand this. And yet there are people out there that this is a capital for them. This is a form of power for them. I wanted to share a little clip from our classmate, Nicole, talking about uh, navigational capital. Here she's talking about first generational guilt, referring to the guilt that students have when they are first generation college students. Here she is. What do you like about it? Um, I like the use of guilt because that's what a lot of students feel like that you have to do this because my so-and-so family member did this for me, so I have to do it. They sacrifice, I owe this debt to them to do better. I think that makes sense with I think what she was saying in regard to, you know, having that um, feeling obligatory to be successful because of what she'd been given, I think that's a great key point to navigational um, capital. And I know it's a little difficult to hear, but you know, she's voicing how she feels like she has to do these things. She has to go to school. She has to be successful because her parents worked so hard to help get her where she's at. Um, I think that was a great example. Next, we're gonna go into the next form of capital, the fourth form of capital. Yeah, I, I mean, I really liked all the things that everyone added on there. I really like the Mariachi band because I think that's a great example of social capital that's relevant to a lot of our students in this area where we are teaching. So that was kind of discussing social capital and how our peers responded to social capital in regard to themselves and their um, peers. And I feel like social capital really was highlighted in the new kid in class act stories that Emily discussed um, earlier on in the podcast. Because like we were saying is that, you know, kids are trying to keep up with the social standings and they're trying to keep up with what's trending, what's cool. Um, and a lot of that falls within social capital. So being able to find, okay, you know, students loving soccer. For example, I recently came to the discovery that a few of my students are huge soccer fans. You know, they're naming off different players 
um, in first grade, and they obviously have a passion for that. And so trying to bring that into the classroom, because not only does just one of my students enjoy it, but multiple of my students, right? And that's a capital that they share together. I really liked that our classmates put social media on their graffiti wall for our social capital, because I think that, that you can find so many different areas of social capital within social media. I think so too, and social media definitely um, has grown in its influence in the recent years post-COVID. And I would say in some ways it's grown at the expense of like your neighborhood social capital, because instead of playing or being around your neighbors, you're interacting with people online on social uh, mm -hmm. platforms. So in some ways I miss that, that neighborhood vibe, knowing everyone who lives in your neighborhood and, and the strength that that offers. Next, that's gonna move us into the familial capital. Uh, familial capital? Social capital, like, is that learning through something part of the curriculum? Yeah. Is that learning through the hidden curriculum or is that learning through this, like, this, the social capital contribute or does hidden curriculum contribute to learning social capital? Yes, yes. yes. Okay, just checking. Okay. So, uh, the boards with role models. So we immediately thought of teachers and how they could even be considered extended family members. And then it's like, so they can learn to say, this is what I can do for a long. And they can really join the relationship with the newsletter, but they can get their information. So, we were thinking of how they're extended family and how we can even be involved in interracial. Nathan speaking on familial capital, and I know a lot of it was kind of difficult to hear, but one thing that he really discussed was having intergenerational family members living at home. Um, and I feel like that was a lot, um, that was a conversation that a lot of our peers could relate to um, and that they see in their students' home life as well. Um, so one of the things he talked about was how, you know, grandma's living at home with him and he just as a kid growing up that she would make tamales for him all the time, regardless of the temperature, regardless of the season, she was always making tamales for them. And that is a form of, that is pulling in that familial capital. That is a, you know, a um, aspect to his life and how he was raised and his funds of knowledge 
that could very easily be pulled into the classroom if you're being intentional about trying to learn these um, backgrounds of your students. As he was sharing this experience, the classmates, you could all see is kind of nodding our heads like, yeah, we, we know that feeling of having your grandma make you those tamales. And and it's another example of in uh, Bordeaux's theory, that would not be considered capital. Capital. There's there's no like monetary benefit. It's not really upper or middle class. But as students, like we recognize, yes, that that is capital. Lastly, we're going to be moving into aspirational capital to kind of tie up our conversation of Yoso. Aspirational? Aspirational capital. So um, Yoso's thing was it's the hopes and dreams of our students. Mm -hmm. And so we need to sit there and, and hope to foster that. So it's like, you know, that like we never to give up. So tying up with that aspirational capital, um, aspirational capital was actually where Nicole first originally shared her discussion of the first generation guilt that Emily shared with us earlier. And I think that's very important to note that a big concept within Yoso's theory of community cultural wealth is that these forms of capital do not happen exclusively. And that, you know, while you have one scenario such as Nicole did with the first generation guilt, it doesn't necessarily just fall in aspirational capital, but it also falls in navigational. I would argue that it could also fall within familial um, mm -hmm. capital because a lot of it is through the way that she was raised by her parents. Um, so I think that's a big working um, concept within her theory is that, you know, a student might contain one form of capital or they might contain all six, but regardless, we have to pull that capital out. So backtracking to aspirational to kind of highlight it um, a little more. Nicole's thought of first gen was a big discussion on that, um, as well as teachers navigating um, the social change for students. So encouraging our students and being the um, advocate for them when they feel like they don't have a voice. Mm -hmm. And through that, we've now discussed the six different um, forms of Yoso's community cultural wealth. Um, we're going to go ahead and tie up our conversation. We hope that you've enjoyed um, hearing the different forms of hearing how Bordeaux, Mole, and Yoso kind of play into each other. If you're looking for more information on this topic, Gloria Lanson Billing does a lot of work um, first talking about critical race theory, education debt, and then kind of moving on to 
both cultural sustaining pedagogy and cultural relevant pedagogy, which kind of takes these ideas of community cultural wealth and how do we put them into the classroom. There's also articles about subtractive schooling by Venezuela. Um, so those are just a few other articles that you can check out if you want to learn more. That's all for this episode. Thanks for listening. And remember, if you want to support what we do, then share, subscribe, and leave a review wherever you discover our show. That's all for now, but we'll see you in the next episode of Transformative Talk. Bye.